Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today I talk to Dr. Kevin Dawson, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Merced. Dr. Dawson is here to discuss his newly published work, Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture, and the African Diaspora, published by our friends at Penn Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dawson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, you know, it's it's been a pleasure reading your work. Um, it, it's it's just as a as a Floridian, as someone who grew up, you know, near the near the water. Um, and so, you know, it, it was really interesting learning about you know African diaspora, aquatic culture, and, and pilots, and all the things I love talking about. So, um, just an exciting opportunity to chat with you uh, today about your work. Yeah, glad I can can participate. Most definitely. And so, um, to start off, uh, what motivated you to write Undercurrents of Power? Um, I think a lot of it was my experience. I mean, kind of like you, I grew up near the ocean, although in, in Southern California, in LA County, South LA County. And, um, I grew up, um, swimming, learned to swim when I was a few months old, um, started surfing, uh, when I was a little bit, when I was maybe eight or, or nine, um, and realized that there were, at the same time that I was engaging in these aquatic activities, um, I realized that there were these perceptions both within the African-American community and within the larger kind of American or, or white communities that black people don't swim. Um, and um, so as, as, I, as I got older and got, well, yeah, as I got into college, um, I started seeing accounts, um, even as an undergrad um, history major, of slaves um, and Africans swimming canoeing, um, diving underwater, um, and these sorts of things. And I realized that they kind of cut across these grains of popular assumption. Um, and so that really kind of drew me in to, to think more deeply about, um, the aquatic past of, of African, um, and African descended peoples. And that made me think a lot about um, when um, I was preparing for the interview, just really thinking about what were the, what does it take for a historian to write a book like this, right? What, um, you know, what methods, but also what kind of archives are, are you engaging in? And also to, you know, talk about the African diaspora, you know, you know, I'm sure you have to know, you know, the various uh, uh, groups of Africans that, that were that were over there prior to them being uh, taken captive and brought to the Americas. So, can you talk to us about that process of of how you uh, got to really learn about the different um, the different ethnic groups and such, so that you can you know really hone in on on, on this you know bit about uh, aquatic culture. Yeah. So, 
I think that's a, a, a really important point. I mean, one of the things that really helped me was as an undergrad, I think one of the, the best bits of advice I ever got from a professor was that as you're studying an area, think about, you know, pick at least, or as you're preparing for kind of a, 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 a job in academia, a job as a historian, think about um, where you like to travel or where you'd want to travel to. And so have at least one subfield um, in that area. And so growing up along the ocean, um, enjoying beaches and, and warm tropical places, uh, I picked the Caribbean and I picked um, West Africa or more specifically, um, more broadly, Atlantic Africa. And so I, I ended up actually as an undergrad going there. I, I applied for a fellowship, um, got $1,000, I think it was, um, and went to Senegal. Um, the first time it was Senegal, the Ivory Coast, and, and mainly Ghana. Um, and that really kind of opened my eyes to um, African maritime experiences, African beach culture, um, learning about different ethnic groups and kind of firsthand rather than just reading about them um, in books. Um, and so that really was was eye opening um, and and kind of helping me to to dive into the topic. Um, as far as kind of the the broader structural methods and and things, I mean, people ask me all the time, like, what kind of a historian are you? Like, are you a social historian, a cultural historian, a Marxian? I mean, they try and and and, and even narrow it down more than that. Um, I guess what my answer to be would be that I'm a historian of the African diaspora first and foremost, and I'll go wherever I need to, um, borrow from whatever methodologies I need to. Um, and so I guess what I would say is the, the really important point for me is to be creative, um, to not kind of confine myself and my scholarly inquiry to any particular kind of methodological approach. Um, but in my case, um, I mean, I've been around the world doing research and people often say, well, you know, how are you justifying going to Italy or wherever, um, to, to England, to Hawaii to do research? And my answer is I study two things. I study the ocean and African descended people and wherever there's the two, that's where I'll go. Um, and so I think we have to kind of break down these traditional, in order to write this book anyway, I needed to, to shatter these kind of traditional um, temporal frameworks that oftentimes bound history and also geograph geographic um, boundaries um, and, and to be creative in, in how I'm going to chase down sources and how I'm going to use sources. And let me tell you, as a graduate student who, you know, PhD student about to start in, like I said before, like, you know, next month, hearing this bit about creativity is piquing my interest. It makes me want to just talk to you about that for the whole, you know, uh, for the whole period of our conversation. But no, we're going to we're going to stay on this book. Right. We'll, we'll have other conversations in other venues. So um, with that, it is me is uh, excited uh, to, to hear all this. Um, one of the bits that I'm, I most appreciated about your book, um, especially in line with um, the comments that you just made, um, is really thinking about how the aquatic and, and the maritime is interconnected and related to so many other bits, too, especially when it comes to uh, bits about, you know, uh, maritime slavery. Um, and so can you talk to us a bit about, you know, um, and, and kind of switching gears just slightly, 
can you talk to us a bit about, you know, the what made maritime slavery maritime slavery versus, you know, I would say talking about breaking down, you know, beers of what people typically think versus, you know, this typical plantation slavery image that most of our listeners probably have in their head. Can, can you uh, speak to that particular difference uh, with some, some of uh, the, the folks in, in your book? Yeah, so I think you're striking at kind of the, the heart of what I'm getting at is that there's not, I mean, we oftentimes, when we think about maritime history, we think of it as being something very different than kind of, um, or maritime experience as being something very different than kind of terrestrial or land-bound experiences, that people are either um, like sailors or farmers or something like that, that there's these kind of discrete spheres that people circulated and operated in. And I think my research shows that that's not true, whether it's in Africa or in the Americas. And so if you think about plantation slavery, yeah, most slaves, um, you know, they're working as agricultural hands. Um, I mean, most of the wealth that was generated by by slavery was produced through um, agricultural labor. Um, but at the same time, most plantations were built near waterways, navigable waterways, for a few reasons. One is that it facilitated kind of watering crops if they need if they were going to use uh, if they were going to um, create irrigation systems. It, it did that, but it also, and more importantly, it facilitated the shipment of goods from the plantation to markets. Um, And so you had these waterways um, that then allowed enslaved people to to swim and to canoe. And importantly, um, I think the geography, when we think about the American South, um, the geography of the American South and the climate of the American South much more closely resembles Africa than it does Europe, where you have these broad, kind of sluggish rivers um, that are ideal for swimming and for canoeing um, and fishing and things like that. And so when enslaved people arrived in the Americas, they found an environment that, yeah, in many ways it, it, it was different. But then in, it also, I would imagine, and sources suggest, had these kind of echoes of familiarity. Um, and this allowed them to recreate and to reimagine um, aquatic traditions, even as they were working as agricultural field hands, um, and so they're using their traditions to 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 to, to help provide a sense of uh, cultural continuity from the communities they were taken from, and um, and to really make their lives better. To provide, you know, their fishing to to augment the rations that their owners gave them. Um, they're using canoes to go to markets to sell goods. Um, to to make their lives a little bit more comfortable and bearable, um, and they're they're swimming and boating to go visit family members and friends who are living on adjacent slave holdings, um, and so yeah, I mean they're they're real, they 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 were able to use water again. I think in many of the same ways that they had used it in Africa. And it's really interesting too, um, especially on that last part about you know uses in Africa and uses in. In the Americas, um, especially when it comes to canoes, and you talked about this a lot, um, about the canoe making. Like, I feel like if we pull most Americans and ask them who were the founders of, you know, canoe culture, I guess in in, in the United and what is now the United States, right? Probably won't be African descended people, but 
you have a little bit to say about that. Can, can you speak on that? Yeah, and I think that's a, <laughs> I mean, you have some really insightful questions. I mean, that's a really, I think, important thing. And that, that like, um, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, a lot of time uh, talking to maritime historians, um, to Jeff Bolster and others, um, not just maritime historians, but but actual people who sailed and who are familiar with with boat making and ship making processes. Because I mean, one of the things I think we need to think about is like, what is a canoe? What does a canoe look like? And so for most Americans, I mean, you're you're younger than I am, Adam, but most people who were kind of um, you know came of age in maybe the 70s or 80s or before then, for us, a canoe. If we are familiar with a canoe, it was these um, metal or kind of aluminum canoes that are modeled after a Native American uh, birch bark canoe, um, you know, the design. And so we, when we think canoe, we think that design. Um, and so we wouldn't think of a dugout canoe. Um, and also a lot of kind of previous scholars, I mean, one thing I think that's important is that a lot of previous scholars and then also the, the former slave owners um, and children of enslavers who wrote these kind of apolo- uh, apologetic histories of slavery, if you will, right after the um, Civil War, um, they made it a point to minimize um, African wisdom, African contributions to American society. And so they would have us believe that, that Africans who came from iron-making um, societies iron-using societies, societies that made and used iron tools, then arrived in the Americas um, and adopted Native American um, techniques. And African techniques using iron tools, you could construct a canoe, a dugout canoe in a week or so, but using um, traditional indigenous um, techniques, it could take you upwards of a year. Um, And so it didn't really make sense that Africans would, would adopt Native American techniques. And so what I first started to do, I mean, if we're going to like kind of unpack this, is I, I started to look at the canoe hulls, like go around the East Coast primarily um, and look at canoe hull, the, the hulls of dugout canoes to see if I could tell what kind of tool marks were on those canoes. Because you can see chisel marks. And so I was trying to determine if they were made by a stone tool or by an iron tool. I usually couldn't tell. Um, and I didn't really even know how I'd be able to tell um, because they were so worn and, and things like that. But what I noticed was the design of the canoe um, and that there were two very different designs. One that looked very much like the African dugout canoes I had seen um, primarily in, by this time, the Ivory Coast, Ghana, uh, Togo, Benin, Nigeria, um, and to a lesser extent, Senegal. I mean, they have a different model. Uh, of dugout canoe, but they, these canoes, um, they either look like that or they looked like, um, what I came to understand was an indigenous or native American, uh, dugout canoe design. And so paying attention to, to that kind of material culture, um, is, is what really helped me to understand that there were these two different canoe cultures, if you will, um, in America. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I know I, I probably digressed there a little bit, but, yeah, that's how I, I, I think I got to this, um, or how I would, I would say we need to, to, to rethink kind of what is canoe culture in America. Um, 
Yeah, no, no, no. That that was that was perfect because um, and, and you invoked the name of uh, of Bolster too, uh, uh, uh Doctor uh, W. Uh, Jeffrey Bolster. And <clears throat> excuse me, I remember I, I took a uh, an American Revolution seminar in um in my master's program at Simmons University, Boston, Massachusetts. And I remember um reading or or I don't know how it came to, but it came to blackjacks, and I was like, whoa this is cool because I hadn't had a topic to write about. And, and really I just went down, you know, I, I just like did my best to immerse myself in like a couple weeks um, of, you know, you know, black sailors, pilots and such during the time of the American revolution and, and end up reading um, Bolster's text. And, you know, he talks, you know, he, he, in, in portions of the book talks about his own experiences as someone who's, you know, not only a maritime his, uh, historian, but someone who has actually, you know, been a mariner. Um, and so I think that that, you know, do, do you think that as someone who's writing this bit of history that for you to be able to know as much as you can, you have to maybe not even operate, but you have to know the um, you have to really know the inner workings of all of these different uh, uh, canoe bits and all of the different forms of of um i don't want to say bow making because that's larger than that but you know vessels i guess might be the a word that i would just use for the time being yeah i think you raise a really important point again is that you need to really i think it's not enough for historians like as we're pushing boundaries trying to understand um you know uh the the experiences of of dispossessed, marginalized, um, relegated people. Um, we need to push the boundaries. Um, like kind of, we need to get outside of, of our, I mean, for me, it wasn't necessarily getting outside of my comfort zone. Um, cause these were things that I love to do, but if you're interested in say maritime history, um, try and find a way to, I would say, immerse yourself in maritime history or in your topic so you understand, so you have like a technical understanding of the process of it, right? So, I, and, I, and I say this because I've seen, I've read other historians who are doing maritime history and they'll, they'll make false assumptions and I know like right off the top, I know that it's because they don't have the kind of technical understanding of boat making, of underwater diving, um, of surfing, um, of, of even swimming or snorkeling. Um, and so it, it leads them to some false conclusions. And so I think it's really important that no matter what the topic is, is that we, that we understand it. Um, you know, and it's, it's a, I think it's a, it can be a really fun and rewarding way to um, to understand history, right? I mean, if you're going to be a food historian, you're you're going to eat a lot of different types of food, um, and so I think the same thing when we're understanding these other aspects of history, we need to actually um, engage in it um, and um, and and have some kind of firsthand knowledge of it rather than just relying on archives, um, you know, on published sources. Um, or interviews even. Don't just rely on interviews, but try and actually, you know, get in the water, um, have that experience. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, just thinking about 
you know, the different levels of immersion. Um, and, and considering, you know, this is about aquatic culture, right? It, it adds that other layer of immersion that you need to do, uh, not only in the work, but also in the water in and of itself, which, you know, just goes into, you know, the mode of how important and how powerful um, the, the aquatic culture is. But then, you know, one of the other parts about your book that was interesting, you also talk a little bit about music too, um, it, 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 which I thought was like, oh, that I, I, I was, that was surprising. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the, um, the musical folk ways that you engage in, in the book too, or engage with? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, let me, I'll come to that in just a second, but you, you, you said, and I think again, I mean, you, you picked up on this, um, like the use of aquatic. And so I think that's really deliberate. I mean, I shouldn't say, I think for me, it was really deliberate rather than, I mean, for a long time when I was writing the book, I was using maritime, but again, when we think about maritime history, we tend to think of it as one particular thing as ships and harbors, you know, something that, that occurred on European, I mean, if you're talking about the early modern period, um, on these wooden ships and on, on docks. Um, and so I use aquatic to stress that, yeah, this is, this is maritime history, but it's a very different type of, type of maritime history. It's, as you said, it's an, it's a, a, an immersory history. You're immer- it's, it's people engaging in water or with water in very different ways than we traditionally think of when we're kind of talking about maritime history. Um, and so I think that's an important point to, to get to. And then the music aspect of it, I mean, again, that's, I think, really important because when we're recreating the lived experience of people, I mean, having been on, uh, spent time on wooden ships, um, both on the West Coast and the East Coast sailing, um, and then having spent time in African dugout canoes, um, I realized, I mean, you realize instantly that there's, that it's, well, I guess you realize, I mean, I, that, that maritime history that you can't think of when you're trying to recreate and reimagine the experiences of enslaved people, um, you want to provide, I wanted to provide a really full kind of, um, variegated um, examination of, of all of the aspects of life. And so it's not just visual, right? It's not just what they're seeing, but it's also what they're tasting. So as you're diving underwater, what does the water taste like? Um, as spray is hitting you, whether you're in a canoe or a ship, what does that spray coming off the water taste like? Um, and what does it sound like on the water? Um, and so those sounds in some ways can be very different than kind of land-based sounds, um, but then they can also be very similar. And so um, that's what I was trying to get into into that last chapter of my book is that, you know, Africans have this rich tradition of, of um, call and response songs, of, of paddling songs, um, and that they're similar to the songs that enslaved field hands sang, um, but that they were also they could also be quite different in what they're singing about um, and how the songs are used, not just the words of the songs, um, but the, then the, the tempo of the song is used to control, to slow down 
the paddling um, rhythm to something that's manageable for enslaved people. Right? It becomes this way of resistance. So while slave owners want slaves to paddle as fast as possible, slaves are going to sing a song that gives them a manageable work skill so they can work at, 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 a, at a rhythm that's you know, acceptable for them and manageable for them. Um, and so, I mean, there's, I, I think that's another thing to think about as, and, and one of my, one of my, um, my mentors in, in, um, at the University of South Carolina, Mark Smith, um, a really creative, imaginative guy, he got into, he got me into, I should say, um, oral, or not oral, um, but kind of oral, um, the, the, the sound history. Um, where he has this this book out um, and an article, but the book is listening to American history. So, what does slavery sound like? Is um, you know, what's the crack of a whip? What's the rattling of chains sound like? And so, after reading that book as a as a grad student, then I thought, well, what does maritime history sound like? And so, that chapter allowed me to to bring in some of the sounds of of um, maritime slavery. And it's interesting because then the next part for me is, right, you talk about Dr. Smith with that and how he, you know, was very instrumental in in bringing this particular uh, kind of, I would say, kind of different, very, very different and very sensory uh, bit of history um, that you're engaging with. And so how does how does this very deliberate use of aquatic culture and and all of the different ways that you unravel it in your book, how does that seep into your work as uh, as a as a teacher and as a professor um, as you uh, create your classes? And um, are you also incorporating kind of like this bit of kind of like you know what does you know what does uh, maritime slavery sound like? What does you know these different areas of of um, the African diaspora? What does that sound like? Um, how does that inform your work as as a teacher? Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's challenging, I think, to to teach your own work. I mean, it can be in some ways really easy, um, but it's challenging, I guess, to assign my work and have students read it. So, for me, if I assign my work, I tend to do it in two ways. One, I try and make it anonymous, um, so white out my name, so they don't, so undergrads don't know. They typically figure it out though that it's that I'm the one who wrote it. Um, and so a way, uh, and what I also do is I assign the primary sources. So I'll assign, you know, an article, a chapter or whatever, something that I wrote, and then assign um, some of the primary sources um, to get them to talk. Because they typically won't just talk if it's just about like my article. They feel, I guess, intimidated. Um, but it's, so it's, I guess what I, what I do is I use it to try and get them to to challenge um, kind of their common assumptions of of human experiences um, because they'll oftentimes think that you know listening so if you're say listening to the past or tasting the past they oftentimes don't think about well look that's exactly how my my daily life operates you know I'm listening to all these things and that's informing how I'm perceiving my surroundings. Um, I'm smelling, you know, my environment. Um, so all of these sensory types of things, I'm touching my environment um, or, you know, the heat or the cold is informing how I'm, I'm perceiving my environment. And so I do, I mean, I very much try and get students to think of it in those ways as well, not just visual history, 
but bringing in all of the sensory aspects of it um, to understand um, the past and also to be kind of critical um, scholars to think, because sometimes you might see one thing um, and smell something else or see one thing um, and hear something very different and the two aren't necessarily in concert or aren't necessarily agreeing with each other. And so how does, how, how then do you make sense of this when, when you have, when your sensory experiences are, are telling you different things? Um, and so that's what, yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess that's how I'm, I'm using these sources um, and sound and touch and smell um, in my, in my classroom. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And um, one of the last questions that I'll ask you, too, um, was one that I, I, I had, um, was thinking about in the context of kind of like what are the norms of, um, of, of American culture and, 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 and then made me think about it in the context of your book. So how, how are women are not typically seen within aquatic culture as far as you know um you know the as dominant figures right that that's uh, you know I'm, I'm not making a huge leap there but um how do you engage with it as far as right mm-hmm. in, in in within the african diaspora where are are, are women a central uh are, are they central figures as far as divers as far as you know the, the canoe culture and and, and you know, the the various bits that you that you bring up in your book, uh, how are how are women engaged with as far as like their, uh, their 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 importance in 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 the story of uh, of aquatic culture in the African diaspora? Yeah, and, and that's a, I think a really important point for for students to think about as um, and, and and professors as well to think about um, as we're kind of crafting our stories is because they're not really visible in most of the sources. Um, they're not featured first and foremost. Um, and so how do you give them a voice? And so one of the things that I saw was that in Africa, I mean, at least travelers to, to um, Western travelers, white travelers to Africa um, would document some of the some of the activities that that women were engaging in. They they document them swimming, diving underwater, diving to great depths. Um, that they're that they're really strong swimmers. That they're taking canoes to market um, and selling goods. And I also, I mean, again, traveling to Africa, I saw women paddling canoes um, or having using outboard motors on dugout canoes and using those to go to market. And so I understood that, yeah, they're, they're engaged in these activities. Um, but then in the Western context, I mean, it's it's bad luck to have a woman aboard ship and, um, it's problematic to have, uh, you know, naked women diving for pearls, um, or at least from the, the, the Western context of diving for pearls or salvage diving, because again, they're, they're bringing, they're going to bring bad luck if they're on a ship and then they're distracting to all these men. Um, and so, you know, how do you bring them into the story? Um, and so I really struggled um, and, and made a conscious effort to do it. And I was, especially in the Americas. And so I, I was able to find several accounts of women using swimming to resist being raped by enslavers or by kind of random white travelers um, traversing plantation um, landscapes. Um, you know, they'll swim out to a river and a white man couldn't swim after them. And so they could just sit there 
um, and then oftentimes make fun of of these uh, would be rapists um, who are just you know thirty feet away from them. Um, but also, I think looking at how their their methods for using canoes. Because um, you do see women when people are running away, you saw you see women in canoes, um, so they're paddling from island to island, and so this clearly indicates that they would have in the Caribbean, I should say, they're paddling from island to island, which clearly indicates that they were really capable canoeists. Um, not only were they did they have the physical strength to paddle, but they also understood the currents and the wind patterns, um, which is important because if you just try to paddle like the direct the most direct route. Um, you could actually be swept off course by these cross currents and taken out into this big kind of ep- empty expanses that that are in the Caribbean. And so they had to understand these wind patterns and um, and currents. Um, but then also, really, how they're using I, and what I found the most fascinating was how women used canoes to get the commodities that enslaved people produced in their free time: the fish, the fresh produce the crafts, how they use that to get to how they use canoes to get these items to markets. And it's not just that they're going into markets by themselves, but that they're bringing their children with them. And so now you have canoes basically functioning as the family car. And as they're paddling to market, you get many women joining up together. And it's not just paddling kind of silently as we do when we're driving in in cars, but they're able to talk to each other. And I speculate that they're fixing prices. I mean, one of the, the complaints of urban white residents was that slaves, enslaved vendors were pr- engaging in price fixing and price gouging. And paddling to market provided really the ideal, I argue, um, opportunity to say, all right, what are you selling? Okay, let's set this price for, you know, for for this vegetable or for fish, um, you know, and, and engage in these kind of price setting schemes that benefited them rather than kind of putting all of these enslaved female vendors in competition with each other they're actually working in in concert um and so i mean it it, again i think it lets us creatively think about um use sources to think about how people lived their lives um and how they pushed back against um their own subjugation and it's and it's so so fascinating because then i think a lot about um I really think a lot about how, you know, uh, we look at, you know, bits of resistance too, and, 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 and maritime resistance and, and, and water resistance, um, as well. And so it's, it's just really, um, just overall, your book was just fascinating and I'm so glad I actually came across it, um, through, um, let me see, you were, let me see, you were featured, um, I think it was a, either a book review or an interview that you had with um, the African American Intellectual History Society's Black Perspectives blog, and um, I was like, I was just reading like the 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 prose and, and such. I was like, oh shoot, this book. Yeah, shoot. Let me let me let me hit up a, a pen press real quick and see if I can get a copy because I need to I need this in, in more ways than one. Um, because you know I, I'm I'm a, I'm a black kid who grew up not swimming. And like I, I've I've have lost you know friends mm-hmm. to you know um, drowning uh, back home in Florida, and you know and, and and you know the I live you know in Florida, and so the first um, I worked for the National Park Service in the summertime, and the first place I went to was um, uh, uh, Casilla de San Marcos in San Augustine, and 
in the 1960s, there was a famous time where you have that famous picture of the guy throwing bleach in the pool because, um, you know, uh, there were black people in the pool. And so, you know, I, I think about like how all this connects to, you know, my particular life and then my family being from the from the mm-hmm. Sea Islands in, in South Carolina. And and so it's just like reading your book to me brought so much joy, but also brought me into really thinking, as you were just saying before, how to think creatively about history. Um, and especially in light of, right, we're, we're days away from the sixth, you know, August 20th of 1619, uh, uh, a particular, you know, pin date that, you know, it's very big this week. A lot of interesting articles being written about, uh, you know, 1619 and uh, projects being made about it, too. Um, and I really think that your book is mm-hmm. is should be a part of these conversations because it's you know we're talking about something that has particular implications on literal life and death in 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 many ways um and it should be taken seriously i think in part based upon that reason for alone yeah and 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 to elaborate and i i mean I think also it's important for us. As, as historians to think about how our scholarship can um, have these positive impacts on, on um, present circumstances, how they can, how our history can help to right historical wrongs. Um, and so what I mean by that is that, that I've actually gotten involved in a lot of, um, and, and a number of projects that are designed to teach um, black youth. I mean, primarily they were designed to teach black youth, but then also um, brown youth as well, Latinos, um, uh, American Indians, how to swim, because there's a disproportionately high rate of drowning among African Americans. Um, I mean, it depends kind of age. Um, but if you take like black youth, they're like six times more likely to drown than white youth. Um, and I actually, I mean, I, I so what I do is um, I, I go out and I talk to different organizations that are promoting swimming to try and dispel the myths that, that swimming is an unblack activity, um, to, you know, to try and encourage people to take pride in their African cultural heritage um, by swimming um, and also by extension by surfing, um, by underwater diving. And so... I mean, I can't take credit for being creative in that because actually what I did is I, I wrote, after writing my article um, in Slave Swimmers and Divers in the Atlantic World in, um, it was 2005, it came out in Journal of American History. You know, I wrote it and I think like most historians, I thought, okay, historians are going to read it. And then um, about a year later, um, Bruce Weigo from the International Swimming Hall of Fame down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida sent me this e- email and he was um, super excited about um, my scholarship and wanted to talk to me and um, and brought me in and, and got me involved in it. And so I've done, um, you know, these go around to, mostly to the East Coast, um, uh, but then also some other places out West and, and give talks on, you know, how um, we can use our understanding of, of our historical understanding to promote swimming today. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think as, as historians, as we're kind of rewriting history or writing more inclusive histories, um, we should also think about how our histories are informed 
by or can inform um, modern circumstances. Most definitely, most definitely, and um, I and and you, you kind of bridged this a little bit, and this would be our our final uh, question about about the book and and its processes. How is the how has undercurrents of power aquatic culture in the African diaspora? How has the book affected you? Right? How how have how have you do you think that you have changed because of this book? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think writing any sort of history is going to change you. I mean, it's, it forces you to be more – I think if you're a conscious historian, a conscious scholar, as you're writing scholarship, you're thinking about your relationship with with the topic. Um, and so it has – it's changed me a lot. And I, and it's, I, I think it's hard – it would be hard to – I mean, that's a provocative question to kind of say, well, it's changed me in these in these particular ways, but it's it's definitely forced me to be a really creative um, and thoughtful, I think a more creative and more thoughtful person. Because I mean, one of the challenges in writing this book was that, at least from my perspective, the way that I see plantation slavery and colonization is that it's the destruction of two societies and two peoples, right? I mean, you have to displace native peoples in order to make space for enslaved Africans. And so you have both of these groups of people who have been um, tragically impacted by, by slavery. And so I didn't want my history to also um kind of perpetuate those wrongs and also i mean i i am um part choctaw and part black and so this was always something that was conscious in my mind and so i wanted to make sure that as i was writing about how how africans were as i argue anyway um kind of layering African meanings, African spirituality onto waterways that had once had Native American meanings and spirituality that I was also being respectful of indigenous people. Um, And so I think that's something that really, I mean, it it forced me to kind of think about my own identity and how my identity was was shaping um, the book. Um, And so one thing, I mean, I could have done for example, when I'm right, when I was writing, I mean, to circle back a little bit, when I was writing about how how Africans use made dugout canoes um, and how they refused to, to use indigenous techniques, I, I, I tried to be, to to be. I made a conscious effort not to minimalize indigenous maritime techniques. I mean, because they had, um, I mean, there's and there's a number of really provocative books that have come out on um in the past year or two on native american two or three years i should say native american maritime history and while a lot of the previous scholarship has has really minimalized native american techniques i mean this scholarship has really showed that no it was it was super advanced even if they're working with stone tools it was super advanced and so um and this might be more than you wanted but i mean being in, in celebrating African African American traditions. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't denigrating Native American traditions. No, and that that was actually like 
totally perfect and, and it hit um all of my uh all the places i wanted to go because i, I was forgot to ask you about the challenge question and looky there you're already you know we're, we're, we're already we, we're at eye level you already knew I already knew that I was gonna ask a telepathic man. I love it, um, and um, and and really for me, um, your like I said, your book means a lot for 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 so many different reasons, um, and and it's why I'm I've been just so so blessed and honored to 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 have had you on the program, um, and and you know one of the the, the actual last thing I ask you is, what is next for you? Right? Are are you working on anything else? When can we expect potentially to have you, Dr. Kevin Dawson, back on New Books in African American Studies? <laughs> <laughs> um. So right now, I'm actually working on a, <laughs> I'm working on a few um, articles that have that are kind of related. I mean, I've been blessed that um, as as people have read the book. They've asked me then to contribute book chapters um, and articles to special editions of journals. And so that set back the, the next book, I think, a little bit. Um, but it's also given me a lot of, of, of opportunities to think about different, um, you know, to think about the project in, in different ways. I mean, one of the things that I'm going to come back to, I touch a little bit on it in, in, the, in this book, but is, is kind of a instead of like a farm to table book um it's going to be a water to table book where i'm looking um because my dissertation i looked at in the dissertation i looked at um fishing um fishing techniques um and food ways um and how enslaved people were able to 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 use dugout canoes and their swimming skills um to fish for food um uh, or to catch shellfish um, finned fish, um, things that we wouldn't consider seafood, um, like manatee, alligators, sea turtles, um, and how they used all of that to recreate African dishes, um, in the Americas. Um, and then how, how, um, their enslavers, um, came to, to, to be fond of these Afri- of this African cuisine. And so the next book is going to look at that, um, you know, just these these African techniques that are used to catch um, seafood, um, and then the production of seafood, and and how African informed um, cuisine then influenced um, American, um, and and I might also look at at English, um, or at least I'm going to look at the the, the Caribbean, English Caribbean, um, but cuisine as well. Exciting, exciting, and totally perfect timing. Uh, because last night, um, I'm cleaning up my uh, my apartment before I move out of North Carolina for for New Jersey, and um, to 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 have something in the background, I listened to uh, this great podcast uh, called The Nod, and they had um, uh, Michael Twitty, uh, the author of The Cooking Gene, on, and he, you know he talked about his. Um, work as a as a culinary historian and, and, and such and so you know he, he he's you know work he, he's uh, uh making food that that in, enslaved cooks would have made right with all the processes and procedures right and, and so you know I, I'm you know listening to that uh like late last night earlier this morning so to hear you from 
from from from sea to table, uh, from water to table, like that was like, whoa, 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 man, this is this this is some psychedelic, super awesome kind of stuff, man. Like like wow, I, I'm and I'm sure the folks that are listening to this are going to be like, well, doggone, Doctor Dawson, or as you would say, Kevin, man, you 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 you're, you're some kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, man, no worries. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, I I think too. The thing is, you got to look for ways to to find fun, um, to find some pleasure in because studying slavery can be hard and can be oppressive, right? I mean, or feel oppressive. Um, I mean, it can be a, a it can take a mental toll, and so trying to find you know some way of 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 um, extracting something pleasurable out of it. Um, I think that's another really important lesson for students is to go with a topic you like. And, and also, um, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff on, on pain and suffering and violence uh, scholarship right now, but uh, you know, you gotta, I think also find, um, find some solace, um, or, you know, in, in your scholarship. Um, otherwise it can just get too dark and grim. Very much so. Very much so. And so, um, you know, once again, thank you so much for coming on and also providing that bit to graduate students where, hey, if you if if you like a place, maybe try to find a way to get there with your scholarship. You know, because fellowships can bring you to somewhere like uh, England or, you know, you could take you to Sierra Leone or I don't know, Australia. Who knows? But a uh, great bit of advice. And I will be taking notes um, as I listen back to this interview once it's published. And once again, folks. We have had the blessing and the honor to discuss with Dr. Kevin Dawson, Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora. And I am your host, Adam McNeil, and it has been a pleasure once again to discuss another amazing book to add to our archive. And um, and hey, if you like this discussion, if you like our other ones in, in our long, long archive, over a decade long, well, rate us, review us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, you know, drop us a line and, and let us know how we're doing too, because it's always good to get feedback uh, for, from our listening audience. And so once again, folks, I'm Adam McNeil, your host, PhD student at Rutgers University, uh, New Brunswick. And we have been on with Dr. Kevin Dawson with this amazing book. Please go get it. Pen press. Go get it. Go get it. Go get it. Because you will not be disappointed just like I wasn't for sure. And the rest of the world as well. And so not to belabor the point, go out and get the book, engage with the work and uh, let us know how we're doing. And also let the authors know how they're doing as well too. And so once again, I'm Adam McNeil, your host from New Books in African American Studies over and out.